that is the sound you never want to hear. It's the sound of the warning siren going off at a nuclear power plant. When you hear that sound, it means you are in the nuclear hot seat. Welcome to Nuclear Hot Seat, the weekly podcast keeping you up to date on all things anti-nuclear. My name is Libby Halevi. I'm the producer and host, and I do this podcast because I was one mile from the nuclear reactor at Three Mile Island when the accident happened there in 1979. So I take all this nuclear stuff very personally. Later in this podcast, you'll have a how-to lesson from local activist participants on how to put together and follow through on an activist meeting with your local political officials. Anatomy of a local consciousness raising session coming up shortly, but first, today is Tuesday, July 31st of 2012, and here is the week's nuclear news. In Japan, tens of thousands of people protested against nuclear power outside of Japan's parliament on Sunday, the same day that a proponent of using renewable energy to replace nuclear following the Fukushima disaster was defeated in a local election. On the main avenue leading to the assembly, meaning the Japanese parliament building, the crowd broke through barriers and spilled out onto streets, forcing police to bring in reinforcements and deploy armored buses to buttress the main parliament gate. Anti-nuclear protesters, some of them wearing gas masks, beat metal drums as they marched near the parliament complex in Tokyo. The protest came as results from rural Yamaguchi showed that Tetsunari Ida, an advocate of renewable energy to replace nuclear power, lost his bid to become governor to a rival backed by the opposition Liberal Democratic Party, which promoted nuclear power during its decades in power. Ida, who wants Japan to exit nuclear power by 2020, had promised to revitalize Yamaguchi's economy with renewable energy projects and opposed a project by Chubu Electric Power Company to build a new nuclear power plant in the town of Kaminoseki. Meanwhile, the Friday protests in Japan will continue. They're building with thousands of people every week, and the message is simple, profound, and often repeated by the demonstrators. To quote one of them, We want our fields back, we want our food back, and we want Fukushima back the way it was. We want to protect life, and we want to protect our children. We don't need nuclear energy, and we are against the restart of UI and any nuclear plant. Ambassador Murata of Japan wrote to the UN Secretary General, It is no exaggeration to say that the fate of Japan and the whole world depends on the number four reactor, and he appealed for independent assessment teams to come and see what could be done. Now watch the game being played between what is said officially on the outside and what is actually happening on the inside. Here's the official line. The Japanese government will strengthen cooperation with other countries to effectively develop and carry out strategies for nuclear safety, decommissioning, and decontamination. The Japanese government hopes that this will facilitate smooth operation of the decommissioning of Fukushima No. 1 nuclear power station. The commission meeting with the U.S. was attended by officials from several Japanese governmental departments. U.S. representatives included officials from the Department of Energy, the Nuclear Regulatory Commission, and the Department of Defense. Sounds good, doesn't it? But here's what's actually going on in Japan. International nuclear experts have been turning attention to the Anagawa nuclear power plant because the intensity of the March 11, 2011 quake exceeded the maximum limit for that plant as well. 
Data at some nuclear plants in northern and eastern Japan show that the intensity of the quake of March 11 exceeded the maximum level assumed by the plant's designers. Officials from the International Atomic Energy Agency and foreign experts visited the Anagawa nuclear plant in Miyagi Prefecture on Monday, July 30th, for an on-site assessment. This is the first time since last year's disaster that Japan's Nuclear and Industrial Safety Agency will assess quake resistance at a nuclear plant in Japan, so it only took them 17 months to start looking around. Meanwhile, in a fresh development adding to local worries in Japan, Chubu Electric Power Company said Wednesday, July 25th, that many parts of Reactor 5 at its Hamaoka nuclear power station in Shizuoka Prefecture have been confirmed corroded. Chubu Electric said corrosion affects the equipment that raises and lowers the control rods which moderate the chain reaction in the core. The poorly protected site could suffer the same quake tsunami double punch that knocked out TEPCO's Fukushima No. 1 power plant in March of 2011. And now this from an ex-Fukushima Daiichi worker. Takahashi Ki, a former cooling system worker at Fukushima Daiichi who is now working as a radiation survey volunteer, said TEPCO's executives are portraying the situation in the best possible light. But he said there are leaks everywhere. Wreckage, too. It's not as simple as they portray. TEPCO acknowledges that three reactors at the plant remain full of melted and resolidified fuel that must be removed and that spent fuel pools elsewhere on the grounds must be kept cool to prevent them from releasing radiation again. TEPCO estimates it will take about 40 years to completely decommission the site. What they fail to add, but which has been tracked by nuclear hot seat elsewhere, is that this decommissioning will require robotic technology that has not yet been invented. There are also the health effects of radiation coming out from Fukushima, and the word is not good. According to a Japanese professor, there has been an extreme increase of mortality caused by cardiac disease in Fukushima, and that the death rate, according to him, might give the creeps to some people. In a report of the investigation of causes of death in January and February of both 2011, meaning before the Fukushima Daiichi disaster, and January and February of this year, the data shows that after the Fukushima nuclear accident, the number of deaths increased by 12.5%, and the number of deaths caused by cardiac disease increased by 14.6%. According to Dr. Yuri Bandeshevsky of Belarus, who examined people exposed to radiation and died after Chernobyl, he has clinically identified the association between cesium radiation and cardiac disease. It is well known that cesium attaches itself to muscle, and the heart, being a muscle, is attacked by cesium. According to the Japanese physicians, what is needed most is clinical or epidemiological study based on statistics or reports by independent doctors and researchers. Now, according to a former consultant for the World Health Organization, Dr. Michael Fernix, who is also an emeritus professor of the Basel Faculty of Medicine in Switzerland, when asked what should the World Health Organization have done after Chernobyl, he said in 2002 convene a scientific working group on ionizing radiation and genetics and add the words genomic instability, meaning what is the genetic toll that is taken through the generations. 
It is interesting to learn that an agreement in 1959 that was signed between the World Health Organization and the International Atomic Energy Agency prohibits WHO from intervening in nuclear accidents. That's why nothing has yet been done about Japan and assessing the damage there. Questions need to be asked, including what genetic damage has been done to the population following the accident at Fukushima? Are alterations already recorded in the cells of those workers who have exhausted themselves over the last year in an effort to reduce the dissemination of radionuclides into the environment? What about people who inhaled radioactive material and ate contaminated food? Has this induced genomic instability? And the children that have been born since, or who will be born to fathers or mothers who have been irradiated, have they inherited the fragile genomes of their parents? Are they perhaps going to be even worse affected than their parents? Researchers have been surprised to find that genetic damage, and above all paragenetic damage, which is responsible for genomic instability, genetic damage to descendants is far worse than to parents, and this risk increases from one generation to the next. Studies on the DNA of genes transmitted from mother voles, those are a kind of rodent, to their babies after Chernobyl found levels of mutation from generation to generation reaching 100 times higher than had been previously encountered in the animal kingdom. Mutations and the genome fragility have increased over 22 generations in the population of voles studied in Belarus. Geneticists have observed the opposite of an adaptation to radioactivity. What has happened is an increase in genomic instability in all populations studied that lived within 30 to 300 kilometers away from the stricken reactor at Chernobyl. The genomic instability is slow, but it will persist and worsen up to 22 generations later and possibly beyond that. Here in Southern California, Edison has notified the California Public Utilities Commission that the Unit 2 reactor at San Onofre could possibly be back in service by November 18. Unit 3 could be raring to go by December 31st. The dates do not represent a formal request to restart either reactor, which must be submitted to the Nuclear Regulatory Commission, which has never turned down a request of this sort. Former nuclear industry executive Arnie Gunderson a consultant for the environmental group Friends of the Earth, as well as being the head of Fairwinds.com, said the projected dates show that Southern California Edison is preparing to rush a repair job. There are all sorts of questions, said Gunderson, who has written several reports critical of Edison. I don't think they can be repaired in less than about 18 months. In order to do it right, you really need to take the top off the steam generators and physically go in, which currently is not on the agenda. Around the United States, nuclear power production is at its lowest seasonal levels in nine years as a result of the drought and heat. It has forced reactors from Ohio to Vermont to slow output. Generation at the 104 plants in the U.S. fell 7%, the lowest level for this time of year since 2003, according to reports from the U.S. Nuclear Regulatory Commission. No blackouts, rolling or otherwise, have been reported as a result. Around the country, First Energy Corporation's Perry One Reactor in Ohio, Entergy's Vermont Yankee, and Exelon's Byron One and Byron Two plants in Illinois have all been operating below full capacity. As long as the heat persists, nuclear energy supply will continue to stay low, and it seems that we're living just fine without it.
Now here is the Bonafide Numbnuts of the Week report. We haven't had one of these for a while, but this is really boneheaded to the max. The Nuclear Regulatory Commission on June 22nd told the Tennessee Valley Authority, TVA, that its reactor operators at Browns Ferry did not understand and know how to implement procedures to safely shut down reactors in the event of a fire. And it seems the TVA trainers didn't know how to do it either. The Browns Ferry plant, located near Athens, Alabama, is known in the industry as the site where a worker using a candle to check for air leaks in 1975 started a fire that disabled safety systems. It was that fire that prompted NRC's new regulations, which had been suggested by the regulator but not finalized until September 13 of 2011. From 1975 to 2011 to get some frickin' fire regulations put in place for nuclear reactors. 36 years of protecting people and the environment. Ha! According to Lou Zeller, an anti-nuclear activist with the Blue Ridge Environmental Defense League, there are a number of violations that the NRC has leveled against Browns Ferry. Zeller said, If this were drivers on the highway, they would have their licenses suspended. What does it take for the NRC to suspend or revoke a nuclear operator's license in light of repeated violations? No response was forthcoming. Browns Ferry remains under last year's red flag finding, which is the highest level of concern. This for a faulty stuck cooling valve that went unnoticed for 18 months. Numbnuts, indeed. For this week's interview... We're going to deal with the anatomy of a consciousness-raising meeting with elected officials. You know, we hear a lot in the movement to shut down nuclear of the need for local actions. While it's easy to think that what we need is the occasional demo or protest or rally with speakers, there's an entire aspect of activism that calls for bridge-building, alliance-creating, and the enlisting of elected officials on behalf of our cause by raising their awareness of our concerns. That's what we're going to be covering today the anatomy of a recent meeting held between anti-nuclear activists and a representative of the mayor of West Hollywood. I'll be walking you through the process with before and after interviews so you can hear how our plans lined up with our results. You can use our actions and the information from the interviews as a template to understand what you can do in your local community to move anti-nuclear efforts forward. The way to start that is to look around at your local community for a way to get into the issue with someone with power and authority who seems to be open to our perspective. Here's a narc to show how the initial idea for this meeting came up. What caused you to call this meeting and pull us all together today? Well, it was actually Lauren Steiner who noticed when we were at the Southern California Association of Governments that Jeffrey Prang, the mayor of West Hollywood, was on the Energy and Utility Commission of the city of West Hollywood. And so she felt like he would be a good person to speak to about our concerns regarding San Onofre and Fukushima and nuclear energy in general. Off her lead, I was then able to speak with Lauren Steiner in more detail about the why and the how of the meeting. Lauren, what was it that led you to bring this meeting together? Well, it's a combination of things. One, when we were at the SCAG meeting, which is the organization that represents all the local municipalities in California, I noticed that Jeffrey Prang, who's the pro tem mayor of West Hollywood, is on the Energy and Environmental Committee. And he was the only one on that committee who was in the greater Los Angeles area. So... 
based on my belief that it is easier to affect change on the local level and um, local officials are less influenced by corporations than state officials and federal officials, I thought it would be worth our while to have a citizens' lobby meeting with the mayor and um, was only able to get a meeting with his deputy but was told that based on how this meeting goes, we may be able to meet with the mayor himself. What would be the best case scenario for what we could leave this meeting with and what is the ultimate goal that we want other than shutting down San Onofre? Well, I think that is the ultimate goal. We want to make sure that that doesn't restart. So we want to give this mayor and his representative the information that he can use to take back to other mayors and city council people ammunition as to why it is not in their interest, both health-wise, safety-wise, cost-wise, and general moral-wise, morality-wise, why we should not restart this nuclear power plant. We want to give him options of what they can, how they can replace that electricity if that plant is offline. So we're going to talk to him about use of renewable energy in his city, how they can incentivize and regulate businesses, municipal buildings, as well as individuals to get solar power, as well as conservation things that they can mandate within their city. In addition to Lauren and Anark, the group included Milo Reeson, Yuki Wasabi, Diane Moss from Friends of the Earth, West Hollywood resident Denise Mike, and myself. We met with Michael Heibach, the West Hollywood mayor's staffer. Recognize that, especially at first meetings. You may not get to the person you're aiming at. That's okay. They have procedures and policies and processes, along with limited time, and want to make certain that you're worth the time before they put you on their schedule the goal of each meeting is to get another meeting and or action. What you're doing is building a long-term relationship with a potential ally. So don't be concerned if you don't get what you aim for the first time out. It rarely happens. Focus on progress, not perfection. So we activists gathered at a local coffee house to have a pre-meeting and arrange who was going to speak to what aspect of our agenda. This is important as there is limited time and we needed to make the most out of it. Then we went to the West Hollywood City Hall, where we were ushered into a small conference room and sat around a round table so everybody could see everybody else. It was very Camelot. I wasn't able to record inside the meeting, but know that we covered our range of issues with economy, clarity, and total cooperation. Michael Heibach listened without comment as we covered issues including San Onofre's proximity with West Hollywood, current steam generator problems, safety issues, waste storage issues. Then we moved on to California food safety, current radiation problems, the difficulties we still face at Fukushima, and the need for radiation monitoring around the state. Yuki read a thorough report on the Fukushima Daiichi situation. Diane offered to provide the wording of a possible resolution against San Onofre that has been used by other cities and is based on what Friends of the Earth has provided to other municipalities. I gave Michael a copy of the new Nuclear Hot Seat CD on Southern California nuclear dangers and disasters so that he and the mayor and anyone else they like could hear the critical information about San Onofre directly from Arnie Gunderson, Dan Hirsch of UC Santa Cruz, and a San Onofre whistleblower. We discussed alternative energies and what the future might hold, and the meeting ended on friendly terms with a lovely photograph. Down in the lobby, we did a bit of debriefing. Here's Myla Reason. Myla, how do you feel it went? 
I was very pleased. So where do you see this set of meetings going next? What is the best possible case scenario for what we get out of the city of West Hollywood? That Jeffrey Prang, the mayor of West Hollywood, take a leadership role educate himself about what uh, about what's going on at San Onofre and uh, the best possible outcome would be to, for uh, municipalities from throughout Southern California to um, band together and force Southern California Edison to decommission their very dangerous nuclear power plant San Onofre final assessment for now fell to Lauren who organized the meeting in the first place So, Lauren, how do you think it went? I think the meeting went very well. I was noticing him. I think he was nodding and shaking his head a lot, and he was paying attention very closely to what we said. And after the meeting, he said that he felt that the mayor was in line with, uh, would be sympathetic with our concerns, and he was going to get back to us as to whether he could get the mayor to sign on to the resolution. And he was going to also let me know the energy conservation and renewable strategies that the city of West Hollywood is already pursuing. Furthermore, he said that um, he thought it would be likely that we would be able to get our meeting with the mayor, and that is to be determined. So is that the goal, the next goal in this process, to actually have a group meet with the mayor? Yes, I think it's important for two reasons. One, he is the elected official, and he is going to be the person in SCAG talking to the other mayors and city council members, not his aide. And second of all, I think it's very important for elected officials to meet with citizen lobbyists, because they're constantly meeting with corporate lobbyists. And I think in this country, citizens, uh, we don't, like, there's a new video out from the story of stuff people called the story of change. And they say that what we need to do is we need to exercise our citizen muscle. We are already exercising our consumer muscle, but we don't exercise our citizen muscle. And that's what I'm all about in my personal life. I spend a lot of time contacting my representatives at every level, writing letters to the editor, organizing protests, rallies, teach-ins. I think it's very important that we as citizens recognize that to live in a democracy, we have to do our part. It's not going to be done for us. It's not not just enough to vote every four years. We have to constantly be out there being citizens. Otherwise, things are not going to go down in our favor. And to see a picture of our happy group of lobbyists with Michael Haybach from the West Hollywood Mayor's Office, you can go to NuclearHotSeat.com and click on the blog page. Now for our holistic healing and radiation protection tip of the day. A reminder that this information is offered as information and for educational purposes only, and is not intended to be a recommendation of foods to eat or supplements to take. For that, you need to see a doctor, nutritionist, or other licensed professional. This comes from research done at the Department of Environmental Protection, University of Heidelberg in Germany. Back in 1978, research adapted from the radiological assessment of the Weil nuclear power plant in Germany showed that as a result of air exposure to radiation, cow's milk was 15 times more concentrated with radioactive materials than leafy green vegetables, and beef was 30 times more concentrated than leafy green vegetables. So the suggestion seems to be obvious, eat more leafy green vegetables. In general, eat lower on the food chain. Animal protein concentrates radionuclides much more than plant-based nutrition. However, this caveat makes certain that any food source is properly washed, preferably with filtered water, 
and in a solution that includes zeolite or bentonite, either of which will absorb any radiation. After soaking for five minutes, agitate the water, pull out the produce, and then wash it, again preferably using filtered water. In that way, hopefully, you will be able to keep yourselves healthy and free of contamination from radiation, which unfortunately has been showing up in the domestic food supply. My thanks to naturalnews.com for this heads up. For the final thought today, in some political work I did more than 35 years ago, our community of activists was starting to grow larger and more powerful. As a result, it was beset by infighting, one-upmanship, divisiveness that got in the way of our larger agenda. This pattern of behavior was something one of my friends, a psychology professor, labeled the piranha complex. The piranha complex is what happens when members of a community with a very small piece of power turns against each other in the hopes of carving out a larger portion of that tiny bit of power. One group gets a little bit of money, an important underwriter, maybe a celebrity saying we like you. A little bit of extra publicity comes down the pike and bam, jealousy ego, hurt feelings, one-upmanship, projected agendas, and what had once been a unified group of people working together for the larger good becomes splintered, fragmented, and ultimately much less successful than it had been or could be. Every movement runs into this problem if and as it starts to grow in prominence and power. Thus, it is my hope that anti-nuclear activists who might be tempted into bad action on the quest for a larger piece of a tiny bit of power, we'll stop for a moment and think it through. By banding together and working together for a larger piece of the real power that's out there, we're all better off and closer to achieving our shared goals. Anything less plays into the hands of those who oppose our position, have all the money in the world they need to fight us, have already gamed the system on their behalf, and are laughing at us and our feeble attempts, as they consider it, to stop them. Splintered, we are nothing. But unified, we can be as mighty as David when he went to do battle with Goliath. And remember, David won. So can we. This has been Nuclear Hot Seat for Tuesday, July 31st, 2012. You can find us posted on NuclearHotSeat.com. Just click on the blog page and there will be. You can also find us by going to Facebook and entering in the search term Nuclear Hot Seat. And you can do that on iTunes Podcasts and there will be. And you can subscribe so you always get us in your inbox. Feel free to share any of our links and to forward the download. We want to get this information out. And if you have thoughts on how to improve Nuclear Hot Seat or have a story for us or a hot tip, Send an email to info at nuclearhotseat.com. This is Libby Halevi of Heartistry Communications, the heart of the art of communicating, reminding you that we've all had our nuclear wake-up call. Now, don't go back to sleep.